You're listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast, a product of the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association. To learn more, visit our website at or.nhsbca.org. Welcome to the 50th episode of the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. I'm Derek Dumas, OBCA Vice President and Boys Basketball Coach at West Albany High School. Today, I'm joined by Coach Danny Miles, retired men's basketball coach at Oregon Tech and Basketball Hall of Famer. Coach, how are you doing today? Doing really good, Derek. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Coach, for taking the time to, to hang out with us today. Uh, Coach, I want to get started by uh, having you kind of tell us a little story about how you got into the coaching profession. Uh and and then maybe uh, some stories about your time in in the profession as well, and, and how you ended up at OIT and uh, turned it into a consistent winner. Okay, well, actually, I was I grew up in Medford, Oregon, and uh, very fortunate. Uh, graduated in '63, and during that time, Medford was a real powerhouse. Of course, it's just one school, a lot of a lot of students in the school. I think we won six or seven state championships in different sports at that time over a four or five year period. Um, I, you know, I was uh, very fortunate to have great coaches. I, in fact, it's interesting that your uh, grandfather, uh, Dale Bates, turns out that he was my seventh grade coach. I think it was his first year out of Southern Oregon University. And he was my coach in the seventh grade. In the ninth grade, I had a guy named Barney Riggs, who was a tremendous coach, Hall of Famer down here in the Medford area. And then in high school, I had Fred uh, Fred Spiegelberg, who's you know uh, just a legend in the state of Oregon, along with Frank Rolant and John Covins in, in basketball and baseball. And so I was very fortunate the kind of people that uh, that I got to play for, and quality people and quality coaches, and and uh, and a real winning tradition. And and I think that was a big factor uh, with uh, a lot of the success I've been able to have. Um, after high school, we we uh football we won a state championship we were third in the nation my senior year in basketball we came in fourth in the state got beat by north eugene um uh, second round and, and then in baseball we got uh got in the semifinals lost 1-0 in the semis so we had a pretty good uh senior class and and that was a lot of fun i got to play a few at bats as a freshman with the uh Medford state championship baseball team in uh the uh 1960s season but uh, that was kind of my background in high school. I, I went to Oregon State. Uh, I played for Eugene Ducks when I was 16 uh, for half the summer um, in baseball. And uh, I was going to go to Oregon. I got a ride to Oregon State uh, also. and decided to go to Oregon State because I wanted to play football and baseball. And uh, it turned out that the baseball coach didn't want me to really play football that fall. And he only had three recruits in. He didn't want to get anybody hurt. So, uh, but during, between my freshman, uh, actually, uh, between fall and winter quarter, I had a tobogganing accident. I smashed vertebrae in my back, and because of that, I transferred to Southern Oregon. And uh, also, I had an opportunity to play three sports. I graduated as a 17-year-old, and I was a year year younger than most of the kids uh, I graduated with, and, and so it ended up being a redshirt year for me. Uh, but the next year as a freshman, I started quarterback in football, and I started on the point guard in basketball and starting shortstop and got to play three sports there. And uh, 
and then that was uh, my college career. And uh, when I got out, I had an opportunity to coach uh, Tama Falls um, in the high school program there as an assistant coach, and I was head baseball coach at Bend, Oregon. Uh, my second year, coach Legion Ball uh, also in the summers. And then uh, when I was 23, I got uh, offered a job to come back to OIT uh, in Klamath Falls. And I was, wasn't sure if I wanted to go or not. I, uh, they hadn't been very successful. And, and uh, but I had that opportunity. So I came back as assistant in three sports. And that first year we were 0 and 9 in football, 1 and 21 in basketball and 3 and 23 in baseball. And, and uh, but it turned out to be probably the best experience I had ever had because I got to see it from another side. I'd been fortunate enough, like in football, I remember uh, in the four years of football at Medford, uh, including JV one year as varsity and JV, and uh, we were 42 and three, so we were kind of spoiled um, being at Medford. But the uh, I went through that at Oregon Tech, and I learned a lot about uh, winners and losers and, and uh, and champion type of athletes and came up with the term Oregon Tech guy. Uh, uh, my my second year there, I became head basketball coach and head baseball coach after after the first year and was also offensive coordinator in football. And, and I stayed in three sports for seven years because I, I wanted to be a D1 coach and, and I wanted to keep all three avenues uh, open. And uh, and then uh, ended up coaching football 13 years and, and baseball seven, and uh, later on even coaching softball for nine years, uh, but basketball for 45 years. And, and uh, we got the program going. It was pretty special in uh, time of falls. You know, they had a I took over a one in 21 program, and there was just nobody in the stands, and and so we came in. We won 11, then 14, then 25. And, at the national tournament my third year, the first time ever uh, for Oregon Tech. And our uh, nice thing about coaching in time of falls, we had great fans, great people, and, and uh, we'd fill the gym every night starting my third year, and uh, you have to turn away people. It was uh, really special. And uh, so we got – I had a lot of great times there. Uh, had a 49-game winning streak at home and later on a 64-game winning streak. And and uh, got to coach some great kids and, and coach with some great assistant coaches and just have a had a wonderful experience. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just uh, – everything I look back on was pretty darn positive. And, and like I said, coaching, we're a little bit isolated in Klamath Falls, pretty far away from the Ducks and the Beavers. So we were the only show in town, you know, other than high school, of course. And but our games are usually a different night. And uh, – we got it going good there, and I was very fortunate. Had a, a nice career there. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Um, can you talk about? You know, you mentioned at one point you thought you wanted to go D one, keep your avenues open. When did you decide decide not to pursue that anymore, and and just kind of plant your feet at, at OIT and stay there? Well, you know, it actually is about the twentieth year. I uh, I had a couple chances to go other places, but nothing. I had three boys all played, ended up playing some D1 baseball and playing college baseball. And and uh, we had a very good uh, baseball program here in Klamath Falls at the time. We won a couple state championships in Legion Ball and came in, uh, came in second twice in the five years I was coaching here. And, and uh, so the baseball thing was big to my kids. I didn't want to move them out when they were in high school and have to, um, you know, just change the scenery for them. So I, 
uh, stayed around and, and I really got to where this became my Notre Dame here. I, I, uh, I just, uh, looked, I looked at my situation. I saw some different coaches who I thought a lot of, uh, went on to D1, lasted three or four years and then, uh, ended up getting fired. And a lot of times when you come from a smaller college to a major college, you take a job that can't win, you could be, you know, out of a job within, you know, in just a few years. So, you really got to make sure uh, if you do make a move that you have an opportunity to win. And and uh, but I just decided to make this. We had great crowds and great people to work with, and and I had great kids. So decided to make this my, uh, like I said, my Notre Dame. And and uh, uh, but uh, there, you know, I, I thought I was gonna. I wanted to be a D1 football coach, and and uh, as it turns out, ends up end up going to basketball, and and uh, it's warmer in the gym anyway. When uh, wasn't so cold, so but uh, really enjoyed it, and, and I had a chance to coach over in France for about 14 summers, and be up, go all over the world for different clinics, and I had my own basketball camp there in Tama Falls, and I think over the years I coached uh, almost 20,000 kids, so I I really had great opportunities uh, all over the place. Yeah, and had a great impact on on those those kids as well. Can you talk a little bit about your your summers in France? I'm kind of curious uh, what those athletes and, and teaching basketball is like in a foreign country, you know, compared to Klamath Falls and in the states. Well, it's interesting. The first time I went over is 1996, and, and uh, um, I had an opportunity. Uh, Tony Parker was a 14 year old. Uh, either the next year, I can't remember if it was 96, 97, or 98, but he was I uh, my second. Or my second camp I worked there that summer was in Incept, which was where Boris Diaw and Tony Parker and all their great players uh, played. It's an Olympic village. And uh, so I had an opportunity to see him play and uh, coach him in some drills and things like that. Um, and I remember seeing him, telling our kids about him. He's, I think, uh, like 14. He was dunking his little guard and stuff. And pretty impressive guy. And uh, But... I, I was at uh, Artisur Tech, which was down by the Spanish border, and I remember kids sitting down. I was going to talk to them. Of course, I couldn't speak French, so I had an interpreter, but there were 70 kids sat on the floor there, boys and girls, and just a week before, I had almost the same situation, about 70 kids, and looking down at them, and, and when I was talking with them, they were sitting on the floor there, and, and I look at them, and they looked exactly like the kids I just left in Klamath Falls. Uh, same age groups. The only difference they spoke a different language, so it was wasn't any different. The thing I found though that the the French coaches did a tremendous job teaching technique, and uh, um, they t- taught a lot of di- uh, differently, uh, quite a quite a bit. Uh, but they did a great job teaching technique, and were good coaches, very organized uh, their system. And uh, the the thing that I really took from it was, um, you know, like I said, that their technique. The thing they didn't like to do was do repetition, and repetition I, I've always felt was so important. And over there, they didn't get a lot of the gym a lot of times, and had to only practice three times a week for an hour and a half or something. And and so they spent a lot of time change, teaching passing drills, but changed the drill every day so the kids didn't get bored. And and I, I was trying to tell them that you need to get those reps in, and, and instead of having trying to teach a drill, you need to be teaching you know teaching something over over and over again and stuff. So I think I helped out in that way some of the camps I was at there. And the other thing that they, they don't blow the whistle hardly at all in, in their their uh, coaching. 
And um, I've always felt, especially if you got the kids playing in a scrimmage situation, sometimes you got to blow the blow the whistle and explain to kids what what they did wrong and what they need to do the next time the same situation came up. And so I was able to ingrain that a little bit into uh, some some of the coaches. They understood where I was coming from, but uh, I I learned as much or more from them than they learned from me. They they did a great job. Yeah. Did you did you offer Tony Parker when you were over there, coach? Did he, was he almost a hustling owl? Or? No, he was he was already <laughs> playing. Uh, you know, it's interesting though. Uh, oh, another time, I I had two German guards that played for me, and uh, they were playing on the same team as Dirk Nowitzki. And I talked to him about coming over, but he he was offered five million that year to go to Greece and stayed in Würzburg. Uh, didn't make. And then about a year or two later, he. Scored 32, I think, in the USA European basketball thing over here in uh, I think in New York City or whatever, and then he got the big money. And but he was he was fun to watch practice, and he could really shoot it, and really a quality guy. But the, both the guards that came and played for me were terrific, and and uh, so I you know lucked out getting a couple good kids anyway. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, coach, you've seen. Uh, coast a ton of basketball. You mentioned 45 years at, at OIT and even some before that. I'm curious, what's the most unusual or strange thing that you've ever seen in a basketball game or practice? Well, probably I, I coached the game. Actually, my four, ended up being my 400th win. We were playing down in Simpson uh, University down in California. And the game took about four and a half hours. Uh, we had a, had a kid uh, – he uh, went back door and dunked and broke the backboard in this one gym, and we were about 10 miles out of town, out of Reading. And we had to pack up the fans and everything and drive into town, open up another gym, and it took probably an hour and 15 minutes to get everything going, and then we finished the ball game. But that was the oddest thing that happened happened probably in my, my career. Uh, we did have a kid... Uh, a uh, guy named Greg Regan made a 74-footer at the buzzer to win the district championship to get us to the Nationals. If he'd have missed it, we would have been staying home. So that was a pretty special time. And I know just a couple of days ago on Facebook, uh, the kids, some of the uh, one of the guys put the, the that shot on on the Facebook, and a lot of my players saw it. It was pretty neat to look at that again. So that was the yeah. biggest shot I think we ever 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 had made. Yeah, that's awesome. Coach, you talked a little about, you know, some of your uh, coaches and, and I would assume mentors from when you were at Medford. Um, can you talk about what, what maybe specifically impact they had on you and, and how you approached the coaching profession? Well, I think some, it wasn't so much the drills and different things like that. They the Coaches I played for, they wanted you to play hard, be a good teammate and that kind of stuff. And, I know Fred Spiegelberg was a guy who he had a, a wonderful, he's my football coach and legendary coach, of course. And he's a guy that always, always made me feel like I was the best quarterback that ever played for him. And, and then I had a lot of friends on the team that felt like they were the best tackler, the best receiver. He just had that special knack and he made, made you feel special. And I know when I came back, I was coaching Oregon Tech, and I was a young guy, 24, 25, and I'd come over to talk to their football players. Well, a lot of times I'd go to a smaller school, and some guy would have nine guys he thought could make the Oregon Tech's team, um, have me talk to all of them in a class, you know, a 
1A school or whatever. I go to Spig and, uh, at Medford and he, he, the very best players, he'd have me talk to him about, you know, uh, he wanted him to go where, where a kid, you know, would have a good time and, and, uh, I was trying to sell him on Oregon Tech and stuff, but I always appreciated, he always, uh, he was, he was like that and, and then, like I said, uh, the, the other thing that was pretty special, I think, at Medford at that time, all the coaches would at least assist in one other sport, and uh, the camaraderie between the coaches was really good. And I'm a big believer in multi-sport athletes. Uh, I, you know, I always took, if there's a kid that played football too and there's a basketball player, I'd take him over a kid maybe that just played basketball. It's changed some now, and I'm, you know, of course, but uh, I really encourage kids to, play more than one sport I I think you need to compete and learn how to compete in the more sports you play in and the other thing I think is important about that too is you know you might be a star in one sport you might be the eighth man on the basketball team and both those situations are very good for an athlete and uh, learn to come off the bench and be a good teammate even though you're not starting and, and then how to handle yourself if you are one of the top players and, you know in another sport so I think there's a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff. The mental part is uh, uh, very, very important, of course, too. Coach, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, 45 years in coaching uh, is obviously a long time. Can you talk about how the game has changed? You know, you talked a little bit about maybe the types of athletes that there are and, and recruiting. and um, But just as, as like, basketball-specific, maybe – how 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 have you seen the game change from when you first were the head coach at Oregon Tech to where it is now? Well, you know, I'm I'm 75 years old now, and I I uh, I remember my dad talking about the Tall Birds in 1939. But you look at their roster; they had four kids, I believe, from Astoria High School, and you're not going to have four guys from West Albany, for example, playing for University of Oregon right now. And so, one of the things that that has changed, of course, is the recruiting. They're recruiting all over the world, uh, and that that changes things a lot. Um, I think right now the kids that uh, that were being recruited in basketball, for example, back in the '60s, are the same kids that are getting uh, recruited now. Uh, same level of athletes that are going to Oregon Tech and Southern Oregon and Linfield and uh, the small colleges. You know, there's uh, uh, the level of play has increased. And uh, there's just so many more players, and then you know the having local guys uh, doesn't happen as much anymore. If there's anybody like this, you look at the rosters at Oregon State and Oregon, Portland, Portland State. Uh, there's not a whole lot of Oregonians, for example, playing, playing at those schools, and and so uh, it's changed. The, the level of junior college basketball has uh, got so much better too. Some great play at that uh, Division three. In Division Two and NAI, NAI now just has one level. Of, you know, everybody's got eight scholarships, pretty much now at that level. So the level of play is really good. And uh, I think one of the things I found, uh, we 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 played Southern Miss and South Alabama and Colorado and Oregon and Nevada, Reno, and we probably played 30 major colleges uh, during the time I coached. And and uh, uh, it's. You know, the difference, of course, is, you know, three inches of man is, you know, and, you know, some athletic ability and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes it's harder to guard a small college team than it is a major college. A lot of times a major college team will have a 
very quick point guard, a big man who can't shoot, maybe one and a half shooters on the floor, but with great athletes. And a lot of times you play the small college team, and they'll have at least four shooters on the floor to spread you out and make it really tough on you. And I've always felt it's easier to guard the small college, uh, I mean, a major college team as far as the uh, taking away their stuff. But uh, getting the rebound was the tough part, the second shots and, and, of course, the quickness. But um, I think the small college game is really interesting because of the number of shooters on the floor. Yeah. How has – how did your uh, schematics and coaching, uh, you know, the X's and O's change from when you started to now or when you finished? Well, one thing I want to do, I want to coach the way I'd want to be coached. And uh, I like running, so I wanted to do, uh, push the ball all the time. Every time we got the ball, I wanted to push it. Uh, my philosophy got to be over the years, though, I try scoring the break, and if it didn't get the break, get some touches. Um, and get, you know, get five or six touches, try to wear the other team out a little bit. And you always find, um, somebody after three, pretty much every team can play defense for three passes, but you get to the fourth or fifth pass, you're going to find guys, teams are, guys are going to try to take shortcuts. You're going to get a great shot. So that was kind of a philosophy. And when I was first coaching, uh, um, Dick Harder was in Oregon and the whole state, everybody was diving on the floor and all that kind of stuff. And we were, which is a great way to play. And that's kind of what we were doing anyway, but. Um, he really upped the tempo on that kind of thing. and But we were trying to run all the time, play hard. Uh, and I was never a big believer at the college level of pressuring full court because we didn't have the depth uh, with only two scholarships most of my career, two to three scholarships. We didn't have the depth uh, to do that. And the other thing, I felt these, you don't see a lot of pressing in major college basketball because the point guards are so good. They just break, you know, go by you and they got open shots. And and so um, I pretty much stayed the same way. Uh, my later years, we were running the the uh, uh, Dick Bennett, you know, deep defense and Tony Bennett. Um, um, oh God. Pack line. Yeah, pack line. Yeah. Actually, probably before I even saw that with them, we – we had a real good matchup zone in the late 70s, and and then I tweaked that a little bit. And when uh, I found out one time that we couldn't play a defense like a, uh, getting into the passing lanes and then playing a sagging defense in our zone uh, because it's just two different types of looks, and they just the kids will end up playing right in the middle instead of doing the job on either getting out into people or or uh, backing off and stuff. So we uh, last about. When we really got good, we started playing the pack line, and uh, in both our man and our zone, and and pretty much did that. And we we also want to be the best team in the country getting back on defense. So we'd either send four, three and a half, three to the glass, and, and then always work on getting back quickly and, and not giving anything uh, any easy baskets. So that was pretty much our philosophy uh, most of the time. I think when you're a young coach, you know, you have a lot of energy, enthusiasm. You're fired up every day to go be with your kids. And, and I think that, that lasts for a while for a lot of coaches. I'm, I'm curious, is what continued to drive you 40 years into your career? You know, those last few seasons, what, what was it that motivated you and kept, kept you in it and, and wanting to, to get after it with your guys? Well, I'd like to kind of interject a little story here. I uh, 
my first three or four years, we got going from 11 wins to actually took over one in 21 year, and we won 11 and 14, and then 25 and 24, something like that. And had it going pretty good. But I got, as a young coach, I, I was like 27, 28 years old, and I was getting too hung up on winning. And uh, I remember a few years later, I saw a very good coach from up in the Portland area, and he's, was, I, I really admired him. I thought he was a very good coach. I went to watch him play in the night, uh, in the national tournament one time, and, and I sat behind, I like to sit behind the bench and watch coaches coach, and uh, you know, also watch when I'm recruiting how kids, um, what they do when they're sitting on the bench if they're you know, good teammates and that type of thing. And the interesting thing was he I didn't really like the way he was doing things on the bench. I was kind of disappointed. But what I saw was I saw myself. I got – and after the game, I went and told him he was a young coach, and I was I'm probably 33, 34 at that time. And I said, you know, Coach, uh, I saw myself and you, and I, I didn't like what I saw. And I, and, um, I got – I was too – just too fired up, too too emotional, and uh, and so uh, that really helped me seeing him. I told him that. In fact, uh, on my last year coaching, he came up to me and said, "Coach, remember that time you at the national tournament? You told me that you didn't like the way I was doing things, and and uh, and he appreciate. He said he appreciated me telling him that at that time. But uh, but the thing that what happened to me later on, I I. I made a faith commitment about, oh, about when I was in my early 50s. And uh, at that time, I decided, you know, I'm not going to – usually we lose games on the road, you know. And I, I decided I was really going to look forward to going on the road rather than uh, not looking forward to it and having that seven-hour bus trip and stuff. And we really started doing well on the road when I changed my, my philosophy about that, when I started looking forward to the road trips and, and we had fun on the road and, and uh if we and and the other thing it was I recommitted to effort was the big thing rather than the scoreboard. And if our kids um you know, we always talk about the three E's, although one of them is spelled with an I, but we talked about enthusiasm and and um and uh gosh, I'm getting so old now, I forget the um uh, I'll think about it here pretty soon, but but we no talked about you know uh, Execution, enthusiasm, and intensity, those three things. And and um, we try to do that all the time. But if my kids did that, I, I was happy after the ball games. And uh, I think kids could read me that way too. And a lot of times we lost tough games, but if my kids played hard, and I think that's important. You know, you got to be consistent. And you got to ask, you know, you just have to ask your kids to play hard for you and, and do those things. So they do that, you can be happy. And, and uh, uh, that's the philosophy I went with. Um, most of my life, but especially the last 20 years. Yeah, you talked about being a little, I guess, more more relaxed. Maybe it's not the right term, but on the the road games and um, seeing it as a, an opportunity, right, and not as a dreadful thing. What I'm curious is what specifically did you do with your team that was different kind of before and after? Well, I don't know if we did anything different. I, you know, um I just, uh, you know, we, I think we prepared real well. Uh, we, uh, you know, we had a routine. In fact, I called it, uh, I wanted my kids when they came out on the floor from, uh, the time they take the floor, uh, I wanted them to not miss a layup. I mean, they ran the layup drill hard, but we had pretty, uh, our layup drill was pretty, we 
11 things in the passing game that we did in our layup drill. Justin Parnell does it now, too. The uh, young coach that took over for me does a great job. But we really did footwork drills, and we went at it really hard. And I remember one time I called timeout during pregame, brought the team over and told them to get over there and sent them back in. They had to come back out and start over again because I just didn't like anybody missing layups or, or you know, uh, that type of thing. And, and I tried to set the tone with the kids from the time we took the floor right on through, and, and uh, we did a pretty good job of that. But I think and we were consistent. Uh, like I said, we're consistent, uh, win or lose, uh, uh, you know, as I mentioned before. But uh, that that was our philosophy and, and uh, worked out pretty well for us. All right. Thanks, Coach. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll return with more from Coach Miles right after this on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. The start of school means it's time to sign up or renew your Oregon Basketball Coaches Association membership. OBCA membership includes access to exclusive resources that help personalize instruction, understand players' mindsets, and maximize the impact of your practices. Members also receive access to the OBCA mentoring program and have a voice in improving the game at the state level. Membership starts at just $15 a year. Register online today at or.nhsbca.org. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Derek Duman here with Coach Danny Miles. Uh, Coach, I want to talk about, uh, you know, you won over 1,000 games uh, as a head coach uh, just in basketball. That doesn't include your your wins in in the other sports. Um, I'm curious if, if there's one specific attribute or coaching skill or, or maybe a few of them that you felt like was most beneficial for you in achieving that success? Well, I think two things. I mentioned earlier that I, you know, I coached uh, that the first year of coaching, we won four games out of about 60. And, uh, when I, and when I took over the job, I was going to recruit Oregon tech guys. And uh, so in my recruiting, in fact, my four championship teams, I had four, Four local kids uh, the three, on the three championship teams, national champions. We had four local kids out of our top eight in all, all, all uh, each team, and and we also I had a, we had a kid from uh, Boardman, Oregon, was national player of the year. We had a kid from uh, our leading three point shoot, uh, shooter of all time, Bob Townsend, was from Sherman County. Uh, we had an All American from Culver, Oregon, Alex Carlson, who's coaching out Southern Oregon. Uh, Mike Nunes was an all, uh, all-conference player from Henley. We had a little guy, uh, Lavelle Hesse, a three-time All-American from Mazama. So, and Ryan Feige was national player of the year from South Medford. So, from within 70 miles, we had a lot of kids from smaller schools, and we had uh, a couple kids from uh, Bonanza that did a great job for us, and nobody else recruited them. And so... Uh, the key thing was we, you know, we wanted him to be an Oregon Tech kind of guy, and we talked about that all the time. And, and uh, Oregon Tech guys played harder than the other team. Oregon Tech guys were classy, didn't get technical fouls. Uh, you know, we, we played hard, and after a game, you're supposed to shake hands with the other team, look them in the eye and tell them a good game and not give them the old limp hand and all that kind of stuff. But we just tried to make it a point of that. And, and uh we had several years we never got a technical. My last 20 years, I got one technical, and 
that was near I think the third from last game in my career. Um, but that was part of the faith commitment too, and I was just going to do things better. And but um, we really talked about and, and tried to do those things, and that was very important to us. And and as far as and going back to one of the coaching things too, I went to a tournament one time. I sat with Jimmy Anderson, who was head coach of Oregon State, and we watched at that time he's an assistant. I watched eight games one day at the Modesto tournament, and I wanted to watch, kind of watch the referees that day. And, and after eight games, I didn't think any of the referees hurt any of the teams. There was some bad calls, but I didn't think it was, uh, you know, that not, not that, that you know nothing that really stood out. And after the game, each game I go say hello to the coaches, and and some of the losing coaches said, you know, bring up the referees and stuff. But I never saw anything during those games, and that taught me a lesson that that I should just coach my team and not worry about the officials. So. I made a point of it after that tournament to try to do that. I very seldom talked to the refs other than saying hello and that type of thing. And, uh, just, uh, and I think down the, you know, it helped and it got, a couple of refs told me that, um, they said if you ever, if Coach Miles ever said anything, you better listen to him because he's probably right because I, I wasn't on the refs much. And I, I, I think that helped us, and especially in the national tournaments. I think our kids did things right. We won the character, champion character award. Uh, one time, and, 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 you know, the referees liked us because we did things the right way, and I, I think that really helps you, um, uh, and it's a better way to coach. You talk about, you know, Oregon Tech guys, and I think that's an, an awesome uh, thing, and, and I think a lot of what we do as high school coaches is try to, try to build those types of young men. I'm curious as, uh, were you able to develop kids into tech guys or would you only recruit tech guys? So is it something that you kind of nurtured or was it something they had to have before they could be a part of your program? Well, most, most of the time, uh, I remember I went up to Lynn Benton to watch a kid play one time and he couldn't guard me, but still couldn't guard me. And, uh, <laughs> but he could really shoot it. And I watched him go on the, I sat behind the bench and he didn't know I was there. I love the way he was with his teammates. He's up off the floor, you know, off the bench and helping when the guys come out, shaking their hand and patting them on the tail. And, and so we took him as, uh, as, uh, recruited him because he was an Oregon Tech kind of guy. And, uh, the interesting thing in the national tournament, he played 41 minutes, he averaged eight minutes a game, but he had 11 three pointers in 41 minutes and helped us win the national championship. And, uh, but I recruited him because he's an Oregon Tech guy. Um, we try to nurture. I, I took some chances on kids and uh, times, and, and uh, some of them came around, some of them didn't. Uh, one story I'll tell is I had a kid that was pretty soft, and uh, he didn't play much his freshman year. He left and went to JC one year, uh, decided to come, wanted to come back and play. And we were over at Eastern Oregon one time, and he actually dove for a loose ball and and uh, drew a charge all in the first half and, and hit a couple key shots. We had our, our top player was gone out and he had a chance to play. And I remember telling him that at halftime that he was finally an Oregon Tech guy and he started crying. He thought that was so great. And, uh, but it was important, you know, and after that game, a couple of my guys who were Oregon Tech guys, I didn't think I had to tell them. They asked assistant coach if, if Coach Miles thought they were Oregon Tech guys. But even now, uh, on Facebook and stuff, guys, you know, they're they're pretty happy. They're saying, hey, I was an Oregon Tech guy or whatever, and, and uh, we like that. It was great. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Coach, you know, you did a lot of recruiting. Is something we've, we've talked about here a little bit. Uh, I'm curious, you know, a lot of our listeners are high school basketball coaches across the state. Uh, what are some things that, that high school coaches can do uh, to help uh, maybe better uh, or improve the recruiting process for our players that want to go to the next level? Well, one of the big things I think is teach teach kids how to act. Uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, because I I I'd ask you know different people, the principal and assistant football coach about a basketball player, wrestling coach about a basketball player, because I want to know how these other people that don't aren't around them or aren't trying to sell the kid. Uh, I want to know what kind of kid they are. But I I'll tell you what, there's a lot of good players out there, and you've got to do things right and. Uh, Things like you know your social, uh, getting on social media and that kind of stuff, but doing things the right way. And uh, I know there's been a lot of kids that I've looked at that, uh, and I've gone to watch them play. And and I, uh, there's a real good player. In fact, Justin took over for me, and there's a real good player. He had me go watch, and I told him I don't think he's an Oregon Tech guy, and and he ended up not being. He was starting for a while, and then he he ended up quitting uh, later on. And, and uh but I I just think uh you guys as coaches you need to really work on the mental part of things for the kids, that they have a good attitude, that they they need to sell themselves all the time. Because there's that one or two times that you're uh doing something else and all of a sudden you do something bad and that that can hurt you for the rest of your career and not give you a chance. So it's very important they learn how to talk to a coach and, and not big time them that type of thing and and uh realize that there's a lot of there's a lot of places it's awful hard to make it in college basketball and uh you know and, and don't overlook any level because a lot of kids make the mistake of of trying to go too high and they end up sitting on the bench and not playing hardly at all and go someplace where you can play and have a good time and be around good teammates and and get a good education is there anything that you would see when you had freshmen, incoming freshmen come in where you're like, man, I wish high school coaches did a better job of, of teaching this, you know, maybe it's basketball specific or um, kind of some skill sets or things that you think high school coaches can do a better job of teaching? Well, I'll tell you what, I think high school coaches do a terrific job. You know, there's, uh, we think it takes, uh, it takes a year for a freshman to really understand, you know, our system, for example. I think that's pretty typical that most places a kid would go. And try to have the confidence, you know, they talk about the big big improvement a lot of times between a freshman and sophomore year. And uh, um, so, you know, that, that I think that's – it's important, you know, that, you know, the high school coaches do, do a great job. Um uh, the kids that you're working with, you know, it's going to be a, jump, a big jump in, a, uh, you know, the type of people they're playing against. They're going to get everything deflected, and, and they're going to have to make the adjustment to that, that kind of stuff. But, um, but I, I think we're real lucky uh, in the state of Oregon, I know, and, and uh, to have great coaches. I think high school coaching all over the United States is pretty terrific now. So, kids are learning a lot of stuff. Um, one of the things that's hard sometimes, kids uh, get some bad habits in the summer, possibly playing for maybe not, uh, not being coached the right way, uh, and they can get in bad habits. But uh, 
you know, in order to play, that kid's got to learn how to play the game right, and, and especially if he's playing for a solid uh, college coach later on. Yeah. Uh, coach, you're known for your value point system. It's something that's uh, still around today. Uh, I can tell you that we use it in, in our in our high school program. Uh, I've had different coaches on this podcast that have, have mentioned your value point system. Uh, I'm kind of curious as, as to the origin story of how did you come up with, with your value point system and, and how did you implement it within your team? Well, first of all, when I was uh, playing in the 60s, you know, basically it was rebounds and points were the stats that were kept. Um, you know, they, they had to do, used to didn't have the videos back in the old days and all that kind of stuff. And and um, the stat keepers are usually a couple young ladies on the bench that were talking to each other. And maybe if you have, you know, uh, you could get close, you know, uh, on some of the stats, you're lucky. And or basically is just a scorebook, you know. So. You look back even in the NBA, they didn't keep uh, a lot of things back then, like assists and everything, until I think in the 70s. And so uh, when I was playing, I, you know, I used to draw charges and I, and, uh, and do some of the other things, get quite a few assists, and, and hopefully have a good assist turnover ratio. I think I did, but we didn't have stats, so it's, you know, it's hard to say. But but I, I thought there were so many other things than just scoring and rebounding that were important in winning ball games. So. My first year coaching, I came up for that and uh, put it together, tweaked it a little bit, and I kept kept it uh, all those years. And the nice thing about it, it was a tool for me. You know, we'd have we had nine scrimmages every year, uh, usually a 48 minute scrimmage, a, a four 12 minute quarter. So in eight versus eight, we usually had 16 kids in the program, so all the kids got at least 24 minutes every scrimmage. And after nine scrimmages. I was able to put the, you know, the, we keep stats every game. We always list the stats by value points, the highest on down to the lowest. But what happened, kids wanted to finish high on the value points. And the only way they can do that is take care of the basketball. It's just turnover ratio. They had to shoot good percentage shots, shoot a good percentage. And, but after those nine scrimmages, I bring the kids in and, and uh, I talk to each one of them. We had a kid, for example, one year, and I, I mentioned that in a couple of the videos I do, but he played at 0.94, I think, for me. He's a freshman out of Medford. And um, one thing he didn't do, he didn't pass very well. And I, I told him, I said, don't try to dump the ball into the post. You don't do a very good job of it right now. It's something we can work on. But you make the basic pass, but you play the defense, shoot the three, take the ball to the hole, and, uh, but don't try to be thread the needle. You're not that kind of guy now. And he ended up for his career playing at 166, who was one of the uh, real great players for us. But, what he had to do was, okay, I'm not going to pass as much because uh, I, I don't do it very well and don't do it. Same thing like guys bunting in baseball. Some guys can't bunt the ball, so why have him bunt? And I didn't want him to throw the ball to the post. So I have somebody else do that. But what it was is a teaching tool. I'd bring a guy in, and maybe some guy's playing a 115 or 116, something like that, which is uh, fair. And what you know, showed him, what, what can you do to get better? And uh, I had one kid uh, drew 49 charges one year, first-team All-American for us, and, of course, that helped his value points. But part of the, those 49 charges, I'm sure, were he wanted to give, keep his value points up there and lead the team. And uh, But then another kid told me one time, he said, well, Coach, I can beat the system well if I just take good shots, not turn the ball over, and, and you know, and that type of thing. I said, well, that's kind of what we're th thinking this might do for you. And, and uh, But – 
uh, I think it's been a great tool for us. It's uh, I've had I remember over I went over to Australia one time to see one of my players uh, play. That, uh, he was playing pro ball over there. In the game I saw, he was six man, and, and I went to a party afterwards. And the coach got me over in the corners, asked me what I thought of the team, and I told him about our value point system. And then the next day he had me do the value points on his team. I said I haven't seen your guys play at all, and and uh, but I, this guy here and this guy, those guys are the five guys that should be in that starting lineup for you know if you're going to be really efficient. Well, they went from fourth in the league to winning the, the championship that year in the NBL. And uh, in fact, the guy wrote a thing on the value point thing for Breakthrough Basketball, saying how much it helped his program and stuff. But and then the other time, I remember there was a Steve Nash went to Phoenix in a trade. And, Took over for the other point guard. The other point guard played a 118. He played a 196 for his career, something like that. And I said, told people he was going to, he'll probably win 30 more games this year. And I think they won 32 more um, because he, he got everybody else involved and they were a better te- team that way. But our three national championship teams played at 1.44 to 146. And our opponents played from 1.01 to 1.05. And so we're a plus 41 on almost all three championship teams. And that was, those are great teams. And, uh, after nine scrimmages every year, I could kind of write down within three wins how many wins we're going to have uh, by how the value points came out. And, uh, but it was a, you know, good players love it. And I think the one player that the guy dunked on everybody in, in the gym class and make the spectacular three, but he, he can't ever win a game. Uh, you know, when he's playing four-on-four four or whatever because he shoots all the time, it it shows the other players that he's not as good as you think he is, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And the kid uh, – and that's and, – and, and it's hard to sell that to people, but the value point uh, thing takes care of it. In fact, Huddle uses my value point system. And mm-hmm. uh, so uh, – but it's been really good for us. And the key thing is learning how to do it correctly and uh, – that's something I think I can help coaches with even even now, and uh, and, and how to use the, the, the system because it does really well. I had a pro coach who was going to fly in and, and talk to me, a uh, NBA coach last year, and I happened to be in, in Arizona, and we couldn't make connections at the time. And I've had several uh, teams overseas use my system, and, uh, and then high school teams, and some junior high if they have if it can do videos and. The other thing, when we break down the videos, we if there's a block or a charge, and, and we need to change by looking at the video. If we thought it was the opposite, we'll make the change so the kids all get a, you know real fair breaks on everything. In all our scrimmages, we have referees there, and we do it. It's a game type situation, and uh, but I think it was worth probably four or five wins a year for us. Now you talk about your nine scrimmages is how you kind of set the tone uh, and kind of even predict your wins. And then do you you stat every game from then on out as well, and that all contributes to the the value system? Yeah, we you know we have uh, cumulative stats, and then we have game stats, and then of course we post post the stats after a game, and and uh, we have the each before they come in the next day to practice, the cumulative stats are up there, and like I said, we put them from one to the top stat guy all the way down and uh you know and it's great for garbage time because most kids if they get played four minutes they they think they have to score 10 points to show the coach they can play Uh well this system a guy comes in and there's no garbage time in our program and the kid can come in and maybe hit two foul shots and draw a charge and 
having assists and no turnovers. And then, you know, he, he has about 10 games. He's played an average of six minutes, but he's playing at 1.54 or something. And uh, now you're not afraid to put him in because he's not going to mess up. And he's bought into the system. And uh, the only other way kids think they can uh, show the coach how they can play is, you know, hit a couple of bombs and things like that and they end up hurting themselves, hurting the team. But uh, I think it really helps on the uh, garbage time. Yeah. And then you talked about <clears throat> kind of your opponents and the value point system. So did you use the value point system to scout other teams as well? Yeah, at the national tournament one year, in fact, there were six, uh, 32 teams. I did all 16 uh, first-round games, and I, I picked the winner of 14 out of the 16 from the value points because uh, I do all the teams. The modified uh, value points don't have charges because a lot of, we don't uh, people don't keep charges, but on the regular stats, all the other parts of it are there. And then the, uh, we you know we like to do it with the charges, and uh, so but when I evaluate us with other teams, it's, it's what's given in league stats and, and national stats. And so, uh, in fact, we played uh, Bellevue, Nebraska one time, and I told our kids that we averaged nine threes, nine made threes a, a game that year, and, and uh, the value points were almost exactly the same. I told told the kids that we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have, probably have to make more than nine threes to win this game. We end up hitting twelve. We won by nine. And then uh, Raleigh Massimino's team, they were thirty. Three and one, I think, when we played him, he was coaching a team in Florida, and they played Maryland that year, lost 87, 84, and beat Fordham on the road. And they had uh, five guys that became pros. They were really good. We'd have a guy probably start for them, and, and uh, but we beat him by 17 in the national championship game. But played great defense, and, and uh, you know, and started making some shots. And they they had a tough night shooting, like one for 17 from the three point line. Uh, that's that's another thing we try to do too. We try to limit the number of threes another team shoots and and the number of threes they make. And uh, we think that's very important. That's one of our, our it's a little off <laughs> off what I was talking about, but that just reminded me that that's very important mm-hmm. in our program. Yeah. <clears throat> was that something that I'm curious because you know one of the things I think some people that are are I don't want to say opposed, but maybe critics of the pack line have talked about that with, with the evolution of the three point shot. I feel like more and more coaches are getting away from the pack line, uh, because it, it's longer closeouts and kids can shoot, uh, shoot the ball a little bit better. So I'm curious, how did you run the pack line and still kind of have that emphasis and to defend the three so well? Well, we, we feel like we are, our alignment's a little different. Than a lot of people, a lot of people, are, a lot of people are in that pistols position, and stuff off the ball. But we we point to the basket and point to our man, wherever we are, a garden guy on the perimeter. And so we got almost everybody in the paint all the time, other than the guy on the ball. We really pressure the ball hard, and we try to front the low post. And even if we get switched off, uh, we'll have a five-five guy or five. Our little guy, uh, little little kid, uh, four, he's about five foot eight, five nine. He used to front the post, and he's a great leaper. And so if they tried lob, you know, did the, he'd go up and get it a lot of times. But they got to throw it through the man guarding the ball, and they got to throw it over my other guy. And we're all sagging in there. If they throw it too high, then we're going to get it from the backside. But we uh, we 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 took away the three. We chase uh, – when we're playing our base defense, we chase all – we think most guys 
our three-point shooters, they're going to come off screens, and we we want to get, uh, tag them and, and chase them all the time. They curl, we'll switch it, but uh, uh, we'll go ahead and chase them. Most shooters are going to try to get to the perimeter, shoot to three. They're not going to curl for layups and stuff, and, and again, we can take that away with the switch, but we don't go around a screen or whatever. We, we I mean, we chase, chase screens, and, and that's part of our philosophy. Yeah. Well, uh, we really work on closing out, too. We work on our drops and closing out. We do a shell drill every day working on that. So the kids are pretty uh, – and and they, they've got to take away the three. So they better – if they're sagging, they've got to almost get there at the same time the ball does to a shooter. And so we spend a lot of time on that. Yeah. Coach, when you look back on your career, what are you most proud of? Well, one of the things we always told the guys, I, I wanted wanted this to be, when a kid played for us, I wanted it to be one of his best experiences of his life. I wanted him to look back at the guys he played with, the coaches he played for, the fans they played in front of, and uh, look at that as being a great experience for him. And uh, I think I had 305 kids I coached. In fact, it was kind of neat. Uh, they, have, they, they wrote every kid's name that ever played for me the course named that for me and under the Danny Miles sign they have all 305 guys listed there and uh, but I'd say probably 90% of them at least or if not more look back on just a as one of the wonderful uh, best times of their life and uh, they had a great experience and and uh, got to play with some great people and hopefully great coaches and and uh, but you know that's that's what I wanted to happen for them yeah what advice would you have for coaches? And I'm going to kind of split your your 45 years up here uh, for maybe coaches in the first 15 years of their career, uh, the in the middle 15 years of their career, and kind of the last 15 years maybe of their career. What advice would you have for each of those coaches? Well, I don't think there's going to be. I think I'm a dinosaur. I'm not going to be too many coaches coach 45 years anymore, especially in high school. I think high school coaches have one of the toughest jobs. One of the things I didn't have a lot of parents to have to deal with, and uh, also didn't have to deal with social media. You know, I got out with four years ago, and it was just starting to it was just starting to happen to us a little bit. And uh, but uh, I don't know. Just I, I look forward every day to go to work. I couldn't wait to coach my kids. Couldn't wait for the next season. It seemed like every year I'd go to France, and that got me really inspired when I got back uh, and then we'd get started. And, uh, and I think that's the thing. You gotta, if, you, if you're if you like that, you feel like that, coach 45 years. If you don't, you need to get out of it, you know. And uh, and just and just be honest and be fair uh, with the kids and, and the people you deal with and, and uh, be consistent. I think a lot of people – uh, you know, aren't consistent with their coaching sometimes, and and you'll learn. One thing, I always, I didn't think, you know, uh, being a veteran coach was anything special. But until I got older and I found out that a lot of the things that came up had come up before, and some of the times I I hadn't dealt with it correctly, and other times I probably did. But you learn from uh, experiences, and that's what a veteran coach is. And so, uh, I I just think it's just if be a good person and, and uh, treat people right and, and uh, don't get too excited 
about how things are going sometimes because it, uh, it can all turn around in a hurry. In fact, you're seeing it a lot this year in college bass where there's about four or five big-time programs are really having a difficult time. And those those times will come to you sometimes, so be, be prepared for that. All right, we're going to take another break. When we return, Coach Miles will try to beat the shot clock here on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Stay up to date with the Oregon Basketball Coaches Association on social media at facebook.com slash OregonBCA or on Twitter at ORHoopCoaches. Welcome back to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. We're talking with Danny Miles, retired boys basketball coach at Oregon Tech. Uh, Coach, for my next set of questions, uh, I'm going to put 35 seconds on a timer, uh, and I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. So these questions should have, you know, hopefully one- to two-word answers, uh, and we're going to see how many questions we can get through in 35 seconds. Sound good? Sounds good. All righty. We'll put 35 seconds on the clock. Starting now, do you think Oregon high school basketball should have a shot clock? Yes. If you're up three points with less than 10 seconds, do you foul? No. How big of a lead do you need before you pull off a press? Depends on the time of the game and stuff. Uh, But uh, I didn't press much, but, yeah, it just depends on the time of the press. Do you think the height? Yeah. Do you think the high school three-point line should be moved back? Uh, I don't think so. Do you have a favorite coaching book? Uh, Not really. Okay. How did you celebrate after a big win? Oh, went in with the kids and got excited and jumped up and down and had a great time and and, uh, – Pretty much how most people do, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Our time is up. Nice work, Coach. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, to be fair, you you got to do a lot of jumping up and down in your career, Coach. That's, that that would that would be yeah. a lot of fun too. <laughs> yeah. That's very fortunate. Uh, yeah. Uh, Coach, I, we call it the shot clock segment. It's kind of a fun way to to ask some some quick questions, but uh, also one of the things that I'm sure you're aware is a little bit of a hot topic. Um, not only in our state of Oregon, but across the country at the high school level. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to get your kind of perspective as a college coach on, you know, why do you think high schools should have a shot clock? Well, I, I wouldn't be coaching now if they didn't have a shot clock. I remember in my early career they didn't have one, and, and so many teams would get ahead in the second half. We were pretty good, and so the only way they were going to beat us was to get ahead and hold the ball the whole half and that type of thing. And, and I, I just – I think the shot clock, it really makes the game better. And I don't like the 24, you know, but I like mm-hmm. the 30, uh, I think, just about right because you can come down. And as I said earlier, you run the – we run the number break for made shots and, and, uh, and actually missed shots too. And, and uh, our goal is to score early on the break or get some touches and uh, – we can get five, six, seven touches uh, and still have ten, ten seconds left on the clock a lot of times, and 
and I, I, I think it's perfect. You got a great flow that way, and I just, uh, I just don't like it uh, uh, not having a shot clock. Yeah. Did you ever notice a difference in maybe kids that you recruited when they got to to Oregon Tech that played with and without a shot clock? Did, did you notice any sort of adaption issues, or or did kids just no, fit right in? I never, in fact, I never even thought of that. Uh, I never, uh, never really noticed it. I think kids Man. play so much uh, summer ball where they're just running a gun. They're used to that, and then they play, you know, play a. In a situation, you know, again, if you don't have the talent and uh, you need to slow it down and get, you know, good touches, and you know, uh, that's the only way you're going to win sometimes. But I still think you can kind of play that way. Like Tony Bennett does it at Virginia. Uh, with a what thirty second shot clock, and uh, does a great job of uh, getting touches and making play, people play defense, and and so it can be done that way too. Yeah. How did you go about selecting your team captains or team leaders? Well, I always it's kind of interesting. I've always liked to watch kids on a playground when they're in elementary school and look out the window or something. Or basketball camp when when the kids were just going out to uh, you know play at noon after they've eaten lunch and they're getting together. You always check out the kid that's organizing the game. You know he's he's that leader, uh, and and I think it's important. I have I've seen some teams uh, some guys pick kids that are real shaky off the field, uh, football field or basketball court or whatever, uh, and I I think. A lot of kids are be about 20% of the kids are just great kids, and 20% may be shaky, and then the other rest of them are kind of in the middle. And if you have the right leaders, which I think is very, very important, uh, you'll pull those kids in the middle over toward uh, be like those those good leaders. But I think picking a captain is very important. And uh, but but I, I think kids, you'll find out in practice who the leaders are because they're going to take charge. Uh, just show you, and I think that's why it's important sometimes to wait a while before you pick your captain. And also, uh, you know, you might have your kids vote for it too, and and uh, they don't, you know, sometimes I didn't do that very often. But one thing we did do, we had kids uh, about three times a year, we'd have the kids rate rate their teammates from 1 to 12, uh, including themselves in there, who was 35 and then 6, 7 through 12. That was always kind of interesting. That scared me sometimes when a guy who was about 12th man thinks he should start because that, that kind of tells you something too, you know, and stuff. So, mm-hmm. but I think you, you can find the leaders and, and there's different ways to go about it. But, uh, I think they rise to the top anyway. Yeah. Did you give your team captains or leaders any specific duties or responsibilities once they got that honor? Well, one thing uh, we run pride drill to finish uh, finish every practice, and what I found out was when I asked the kids, uh, the captains, how many prides we needed tonight, they were tougher than I was. And the mm-hmm. situation, the kids didn't get upset with me because they had to run too much. It was, uh, and they weren't weren't going to get upset with the captain because he's he's one of them. And I thought that always worked real well for us. And uh, uh, but. You know, a lot of times they make the bed check for us on road trips, and uh, uh, they, had, they had some responsibilities. And, and uh, I'd talk to, you know, of course, have the kids in, the, the captains come in, and I'd talk to them after, at least once a week after practice, uh, 
see how things are going and stuff. And one of one of the kids and the coaches, I mean the assistants, feel like excuse me, the captains feel like they can come in anytime and and talk about anything we need to do. And and there's, of course there's all kinds of different ways to handle different situations, and that's from maybe experience comes comes into play. Coach, I meant to ask you this in, in a previous segment. I skipped my mind. Uh, one of the things that I heard with your point value system, to kind of go back to that, um, did you – were the top five kids in your point value system, were those always your starters, or did you have some digre- discretion with that? No. they. You know, what the, the, What we did, there was a times – there's a couple times, of you know, I've done that some, but mm-hmm. what it is is – it's a tool to get guys to play better. And, right. again, if a guy, a starter's, you know, not playing well, playing under a one or whatever, and then you got to make a change. Uh, you know, you need to make the change. But uh, but I always felt if, if I had, I'll tell you what, if I could put five guys on the floor that are all playing over a one four zero, for example, we're not going to lose. We're not going to lose hardly anybody. And uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, it, it's it's a tool. Uh, I didn't tell the kids they'd start if they're the highest value point, but what happens a lot of times you'll have three guys that are playing uh, one position and they're all pretty close. Well, the, I usually take the value point guy first, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, they're all going to split time maybe anyway and, and, and tell maybe, you know, we had a couple of situations where we had three-man rotations in two spots and uh, guys, after a while, uh, two guys would emerge and get, you know, they were going to get 30 minutes and the third guy's going to get 20 minutes or something, you know, during a college game and, you know, because that would come out come out in the wash too. Right. <clears throat> Can you talk about uh, some things, activities, or maybe like team bonding type things that you did? You know, I think one of the hard parts with college programs is, you know, you're not getting kids that you've worked with before, right? They're coming from different states, sometimes different countries. So what are some things that you did to kind of build that cohesiveness and bond within your team? Well, we had a, we had a situation. We went, we won three national championships and came in third uh, once and second once in the national champ. You know, we, so we had five final four teams in a period of 14 years. But about eight of those years, nine of those years, we we did a summer program where we uh, did CrossFit. And uh, what I tried to do in CrossFit is I'd come down sometimes to watch at 6 in the morning. They had it 6 in the morning. I know Justin Parnell, who's our head coach now, was a great leader for us. And, and one summer, he wanted all the guys to stay for the summer. So, you know, most of the kids go home. Because, you know, I want to go, get home. But uh, these kids wanted to stay. And, and so... They bond, and one of the things, you know, we'd say, I'd tell them, i said, you know, those, those guys are going to be playing against her out water skiing right now, and you guys are lifting weights at 6 in the morning and doing CrossFit. You know how tough CrossFit is. And uh, mm-hmm. But I had a, uh, a guy, a pretty tough guy, who ran it. And also, I wanted to uh, have him evaluate our kids from a different perspective. And uh, But it was, it was a great thing because, uh, you know, sometimes you get – as a coach, you, you kind of have a feeling different kids uh, after you got to know them. But he gave me some insight on from his point of view um, that really helped us sometimes, and, and it was good for me to not to be there all the time. But I thought the bonding part of it was just tremendous. I thought it was kids were working hard together, and they really pulled together, and guys were rooting for each other. And um, 
I know my son did it in baseball at Oregon Tech too with the kids and and uh, but I thought it made us tougher than most teams we played and and we weren't very big a lot of times. Our tallest guy was six five. With one championship, we had three six five. Five guys rotated the post, two post position. And we had a five five guy and a five eight guy playing guard, and a six footer rotated those positions. And uh, but they were tougher than nails, and, and uh, so. But I, I I think that type of thing. And also, uh, we you know we had one week of conditioning, and we'd make it really hard. We ran off some pretty good. We didn't ever have to cut because most of the kids weren't tough enough to make it through that week. And uh, the other thing we did a lot, I we played four-on-four cross-court uh, in the preseason for, and I keep track of wins and losses. And we'd usually play 75 games in the preseason. I kept track of their winning percentage, and uh, and what I found is the, the real good players or the there were certain kids who were real winners, and some guys didn't win very often, but were pretty talented guys. And those guys really worried me. And uh, but I look back, I, I did a uh, checked out a lot of the kids when got done coaching, and a lot of those kids that did great in the percentages of winning those. Uh, we played at seven buckets, win by two, and and then we changed teams every time. And guys would pick the teams, and uh, so. If you're smart, you're picking guys to win, and you know. And so, uh, it was a situation where they picked teams, and, and after every game, and it was uh, uh, really taught, showed us a lot there too. So, we had several different things we did like that. It was, and that was a bonding thing too. We played those 75 four-on-four games, and uh, kids really competed. You know, guys would come to my gym before the season start and watch that, and they couldn't believe how hard they were playing it, but. It, Guys got used to doing that, and it really went well for us. Yeah. Do you have a favorite drill that you would do? Yeah, my favorite drill is pride drill, and I got this from Craig Howard. He's a coach at uh, – we're real good friends. We coached together in football, and he was at Southern Oregon. passed away with a heart attack about four or five years ago and led him to the national championship. But he had a drill he called pride drill. We used to – I was a defensive back coach with him, and he was a uh, defensive coordinator when Don Reed was here, um, coaching at Oregon Tech, and he was an ex-coach at Oregon. And uh, But Craig had a drill where he'd break his defensive teams from the sidelines to the field. They call it, call it defensive. They'd get down on, on their knees, get in position. He'd blow the whistle. They'd, they'd sprint back to the field, and we'd send another team out, second group and third group. And we'd do those. Those were our sprints. And so – what I decided to do, uh, we started running our number break, five on zero, and so we run the number break and we'd, we'd score, and then I'd have the guys keep grabbing the ball, putting it in for layups until it blew the whistle, and then they'd get back on defense, going as hard as they could, head on a swivel, and getting back, taking away the basket, and then as soon as they got to the basket, we'd roll the ball back, and another ball would be coming up the floor with our second group, and if we had a, and usually if we if we had like 14 guys, we'd have seven on a team, but two guys running on the sidelines, and they they would run with the guys on the break. But then as soon as we started shooting the layups, they'd come in with those guys, and all seven would get back together. But I'd give them a zero, one half, a one, a one half, or two, two and a half, or three. And so when we finished practice each night, I'd ask the captains how many prides we needed, and if I was wanting to be tough and and 
uh, I could make their scores lower. I pretty much get whatever I wanted out, you know, get them out sooner, you know, you know, or later or whatever. But so if the one group did a real good job of taking care of the basketball on the break and they made, the, you know, made the layup and they got back in a hurry, all five guys, I give them a perfect score would be a three. And they only get one or two times during practice uh, getting back, uh, getting a three. And, and two and a half was very good, two, and then, you know, on down to zero. They screwed up on the – the other thing we did, we'd, we'd run perfect plays sometimes. They'd run the break, run a perfect play, and then they'd do that right, and then they'd shoot, and they'd get back on defense again. And, uh, but I keep track, like first group maybe got two and a half, next group got a one, so that's three and a half, I, I'd add to it. Next group did a one and a half, that's five. Next group got three, that's eight. We just keep going until we hit our score, which is like 60. And the last, last group goes, and if I think they're going to uh, get enough to finish at 60, I'll send the other group. And they, they all tip the ball, or we get five dunks before we break back. And they, what happens is guys are all pumped up at the end of practice. You know, we just we ran like heck for a long time, but they feel good about themselves and are leaving the floor feeling good. Well, a lot of times, I think we once run suicides after a great practice, and guys are just guys throwing up or something. The guys are just beat. You know, they're not finishing practice feeling good. And we always felt that this was a great way to practice. We tried to get our running out of our drills, and we were always in great shape. And we did it with uh, pride drill was a big part of that. Yeah, I like it. That's awesome. Well, Coach, uh, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. You bet, Derek. Okay. If you have any follow-up questions or want to get a hold of Coach Miles, you can find his contact information in the episode description. We hope you'll join us next time here on the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Until then, coach him up. Thank you for listening to the Oregon Basketball Coaches Podcast. Is there a coach you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like to hear us discuss? You can write us a message on the Anchor website or send us an email at OregonBasketballCoaches at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify.